Well, dear friends, we have the great, great joy and opportunity this morning to do the most important thing um, that we can do, and that is to grab our Bibles and open them and read them together. We're going to read together Nehemiah 6 and the first four verses of Nehemiah 7. So for members of Palm Vista, my friends, this, this is the best. This is as good as it gets. Open your Bible. I'm using one of the Bibles that we provide here, the ESV paperback edition. Uh, If you're a guest, maybe you didn't bring a Bible or maybe you forgot your Bible at home, we're going to go ahead and put the words up on the screen. Let me encourage you, bring your Bibles, read your Bibles. Uh, This is the Word of God. We're going to take our time reading this text. We're not going to rush through it. Nothing more important that we can do than to read this text together and listen to what God has to say to us. And then, by God's grace, have that text exposited or, or explained by the Holy Spirit, by the anointing of God, the preaching of his word, that you, church, might be built to the glory of our God, our Father. So, Nehemiah chapter 6, please, beginning in verse 1. Nehemiah 6, 1. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies note the word enemies, heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are rebuilding the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten. Circle that word. First reference to the word of fear or frighten. To frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaniah and the son of Delilah, and the son of Metabil, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be, second reference to this word, afraid, and act in this way, and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. 
Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Third reference. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And all our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us were afraid, fourth reference, and fell greatly in their own esteem. And they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonan, and had taken the daughter Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Fifth reference now. The fourth reference was our enemies afraid. This is the fifth reference. Verse 1, chapter 7. And when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites, and had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful. And God... Fearing, sixth reference there. This is a different fear now. This is the fear of God. God fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot while they are still standing guard. Let them shut the bar and bar the doors. Appoint, notice that word appoint, guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. Let's pray. Lord, would you anoint my lips to preach your word according to your heart, your mind, your burden, your passion. And would you open the ears of my friends to hear your word. Oh God, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. The one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Lord, build your church this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Six references to the word fear. Five of them referring to the fear of man or the fear that men can visit upon us. One word referring to the fear of God. I met a modern day Nehemiah on Thursday. Her name is Edith and she is part of 40 Days for Life, a pro-life prayer movement. For 40 days during the months of September and October, Edith takes her lunch hour and an hour each Saturday to pray in front of an abortion clinic here in Miami. She prays for the women who walk through the door seeking an abortion, and she prays for the workers who perform those abortions. Jose Prado is leading our efforts to join Edith and many others to pray. So he invited me this last Thursday during our lunch hour to go pray with Edith in front of an abortion clinic in Miami. And as we were waiting for her to come, Jose began to fill me in on Edith's last encounter with an abortion clinic worker the Saturday previous. She had told Jose that this worker had yelled at her, had intimidated her, had bullied her, had threatened to call the authorities on her. And as he's telling me this story, I noticed a man get into a car right near us, turn on the engine, and appeared to be observing us through his rearview mirror. It's crazy, guys. All of a sudden, my mind began to race. Is this the guy? Is this the abortion clinic worker? Where's his big hat? Is he going to jump out 
and scream at me? Is he going to call the authorities on me? And in an instant, I'm thinking, let's just leave. Let's just leave. You know, I can pray for this abortion clinic from the comfort of my office at my desk. As I was contemplating all of this in my mind, Halsey's voice brought me back to reality by informing that Edith was coming. I looked up and I, I saw this grandmother walking toward me with a huge smile on her face, a green t-shirt on that said, life. And we prayed. We proceeded to pray for God's grace, God's mercy. We prayed heaven and its will, God's will to come to earth. We prayed. As we were driving home, I began to reflect on my experience. And as I prepared this sermon, I began to reflect on my experience. And I realized that today's message, today's message speaks to the fear that tries to get us to quit. Irrational, crazy fear, but an opposition to God's word. It's the same opposition that Nehemiah faced, the same fear that was tried to, trying to stop him from building the walls in Jerusalem. So folks, what's today's passage about? It's about dealing with the opposition of fear. And let me help you apply it to your life. You may think, I'm not a fearful guy, Al. I don't go in front of abortion clinics to pray. I don't get into situations where fear might visit me. Okay, that's fine. But fear is a broad category. Fear, fear speaks to the heart of our existence. Let me tell you why. When we study the Bible, we understand that fear is unbelief. Fear is unbelief. At some point, fear says, I don't trust you, God. And then when we understand the Bible a little further, unbelief, a lot of times, is expressed by grumbling. So let me make the connection for you. You may not be a person with a lot of fear, but do you grumble a lot? might be unbelief, and fear might be somewhere lurking. Going to need discernment. I pray God help you understand this. But then secondly, fear. Fear is a good thing. Because what fear does is fear identifies for me my cravings. How so? Okay? Let's say I tell you I fear your rejection. The Bible really doesn't have a category for that. Do you know the category the Bible teaches us? Is I crave your approval. And I crave your approval so much that it is a fear of rejection that stops me from sharing the gospel with you. Or, I fear financial ruin. The Bible really doesn't have a category for that. But oh, does it have a category for greed and covetousness. So maybe my fear of financial ruin is actually just a craving for financial blessing that has come to rule my life and become my God. So fears, fears are good. They identify what's going on in our hearts. So I pray that as this message comes to you, that the grace of God will come to you and help you identify where fear is paralyzing you and causing you to not do the work that God would be calling you to do. By the way, the man who got into that car, whom I thought was observing us, was going to jump out and yell at us at any moment, was actually just working on something. And when he was done working on something, he put his car in drive and drove peacefully away. Boy, did I feel foolish. But, but for a moment, that was reality for me. 
And I was ready to quit. My mind was deceived. My heart was disturbed. I was going to walk away from the work God had caused, called me to do. So guys, we've got we to talk about fear and its opposition. To do that, let's look at Nehemiah and how he dealt with the fear that came to him. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But... They intended to do me harm. Here we see the opposition of fear, which is the first point of the message. The opposition of fear and a sub-point underneath that, fear tries to distract us. The first thing that fear tries to do is distract us. I was distracted by that man in the car, not because he distracted me. He just silently got in the car, turned on the engine, and sat there. I was distracted by the fear in my heart. There was a deception, but it was a distraction. It distracted me. Nehemiah had been working hard, folks. The walls were all built. However, the doors had not been hung in the gates. These were massive, 20-foot, maybe taller doors. A huge scaffolding had to be erected. Pulleys, precisely maneuvering the doors to hang them in place. What good's a wall without doors? Sanballat and Tobiah, his enemies, knew that this was the last chance to stop the work. So what do they do? They invite Nehemiah to come meet with them in the plain of Ono. Do you see that there? Verse 2. In the plain of Ono. Now, the plain of Ono was about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was on the border between Judah Nehemiah was the governor of Judah. Samaria, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, his enemy. And Ashdod, the, the, the old Philistine capital, the enemy of Israel. So right on the border of these three uh, provinces, a day's journey from Jerusalem, they're saying, come on up. We want to meet with you there. A place that is unprotected, a place that is vulnerable, a place that is far away from God's people and God's place. Friends, our enemy often tries to get us to go to unprotected places to distract us from the work. Where are the plains of Ono in your life? How is the enemy trying to distract you from the work he's called you to do and and pull you away from God's people, God's place, home group, singles, youth, Uh, Sunday morning service, maybe just meaningful fellowship with others, a place of isolation from your brothers and a place far too close to the world in your heart. Are there there planes of Ono that God wants to identify in your life? Now note Nehemiah's discernment in, in verse 2b. He says, they were intending to harm him. May God give you biblical discernment, friends, through this message, to identify the plains of Ono where the enemy intends to harm you. And may you respond as Nehemiah responded. Look at verse 3. And I sent messengers to them. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I, I answered them in the exact same manner all four times. Folks, our enemy is persistent. Our enemy is persistent to intimidate us and distract us. Listen, don't give in to the fear and the worry, but simply and humbly do as Nehemiah said. and says, why should I stop the work while I leave it to come down to you? We must persevere, my friends, in God's word and keep the task in front of us and refuse to be distracted from the work of God 
by fear, the fear, the, 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 the oppression, the opposition of distraction. We must refuse to go to the plains of Ono. And if we're there, we need to come back. To whom do you need to say no in your life who is bidding you to the plains of Ono? Perhaps you've said no to them. Thank you. I suspect you have because you're here. Thank you. But perhaps you're finding yourself with the second opposition of fear. A deeper opposition of fear. An opposition of fear that that comes at you and is so disheartening. Like Nehemiah found himself in verse 5. Fear tries to dishearten us. That's the second sum point to the main point of the opposition of fear. Look at verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Sanballat is a persistent enemy. He's appealing now for a fifth time, and he wants Nehemiah to stop, but this time he comes with an open letter. And what does the letter say? Now, open letter meant back then there was no internet, there was no TV, so an open letter was the closest form to an internet, an email, Facebook, whatever that you can find. This was common knowledge, public knowledge. This is in the blogs, okay? And what do the blogs have to say? And the blogs reach all the way back to the capital of Persia, Artaxerxes, who's over all this area. Here's what they say. In it is written, quote, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. Here's what the prophets say. There is a king in Judah. And now, the king, Artaxerxes, the Persian king, will hear of these reports. So, come and take counsel with us. So, now come and let us take counsel together. Do you see this? The opposition of fear that comes to dishearten us. See, this letter was meant to dishearten Nehemiah by accusing him of treason against King Artaxerxes, the very king that had sent him some six months earlier, the very king whom he served faithfully as a cupbearer. Serious accusations. Serious stuff. The enemy, friend of our soul, knows, knows how he can accuse us, whether it's slander, whether it's fear, to dishearten us. And maybe you find yourself in a similar situation as as Nehemiah. You have a very clever and persistent enemy who accuses you, may even be your own heart and your flesh, much like Sanballat did to Nehemiah. See, Sanballat knew, he knew he played on this Jewish hope of a Messiah king. 400 years later, the Messiah king would come into Jerusalem. And the prophets would say, here comes the Messiah, Hosanna. Of course, they would crucify him a week later. But he is and he was and is the Messiah king. But, but Sanballat's saying, hey, Nehemiah, you, you think you're that Messiah king. You just want to rebuild these walls so that you would be elevated to be the king of Judah. And I'm going to do this in an open letter, and Artaxerxes is going to find out. And buddy, he's going to call you back to Susa, the summer capital, and he's going to take your head off. Disheartening. Here was the ploy. How did Nehemiah respond? Look at verse 8. I love this. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Much like I was inventing out of my own mind the fact this guy in the car was going to jump out and scream at us. Nehemiah courageously called Sanballat's bluff with truth. The truth of God's word. All of these accusations were the invention of his mind. And we too must call Satan's bluff when he comes to dishearten us. 
with accusations that tell us we are simply hypocritical sinners. We will never change. We have committed treason against our King, Jesus. What are you going to do, feeble Christians? At that point, we must do what Nehemiah did. We must call upon Christ, and we must call upon the Word of God, and we must say, yes, we are sinners, but we are sinners saved by grace. We must call upon Christ, our Savior, who enables us to stand before God, our Father, with His righteousness. You see, verse 2 of one of my favorite songs, Before the Throne of God, has been such a help for me. When I begin to believe the accusations of Satan, the world and my own flesh that lead me to despair or disheartenment, this song, verse 2 of the song, Before the Throne of God, it says the following. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Oh, friends, look at verse 9 now of of Nehemiah 6. We see Nehemiah's discernment. We see, though he did not know this like we know it, he could not write that verse yet because Christ had not come yet. He had a hope of God's redemption. He had a hope of what God was doing. And in verse 9, he responds to the the opposition of, of fear that comes to dishearten us with these words. For they all wanted to frighten us. First use of the word, frighten. Thinking. Now, they wanted to frighten us thinking the following. Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Disheartening fear, friends, in the form of accusations, are designed to get us to drop our hands and quit. In fact, the Hebrew word translated there, drop in the English, literally means to weaken or dishearten. Fear comes to dishearten us. It comes to cut our heart right out and make us quit, run away. Much like a boxer who enters into the ring with his hands up, But then as an opponent begins to pummel him with body blows, body blow after body blow, and as he takes them, he starts dropping his hands and dropping his hands. And if he does not counter those body blows, he will either be knocked out or he will just say, no more, I quit. You see, the body blows of Satan are accusations. He is an accuser of the brethren. He accuses. He accuses to dishearten us right in the middle of the battle. He may use others' mouths, others' lips, our own minds. The world, you're a loser. What are you doing? Regrets. Those are body blows of acquisition, of accusation that must be countered with one thing and one thing only, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the gospel give us heart to fight back these body blows. It is the gospel that tells me my worth is in Christ, in Christ alone. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Satan. I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by a merciful God. So take it up with him. And I get my hands back up. And I fight. Now, when Sanballat realized the body blows weren't going to stop Nehemiah, he switches. And this is the third now of the three oppositions of fear. First, distraction. Second, disheartening. Third, deception. 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 Look at verse 10. 
Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Mehitabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? What and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid, second use of the word, and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Here comes fear, trying to deceive us and discredit us. Sanballat and Tobiah hired this false prophet, Shemaiah, And he came to deceive and discredit Nehemiah. He comes with the so-called word of the Lord, which was not the word of the Lord at all. And he says, they're going to kill you. So he urges Nehemiah to run into the temple for protection. Sounds good, right? Well, no, not if you were a good Jew who knew your Bible. We need to know our Bibles. See, this was a major sin, and Nehemiah knew it. This is what gave Nehemiah the discernment to say, this is a false prophet. Because the Bible specifically said Nehemiah couldn't go into the temple. He wasn't a priest. And if he would have gone in and bit on this ploy, he would have been discredited before the people. Fear comes to deceive us that a situation needs radical, radical fixing. I've got to take the matters into my own hands. I've got to change my child. I've got to be harsh. I've got I've to maybe deceive a little bit with my finances. I've got to do whatever, but, but it comes in to deceive us and ultimately discredit us, and it says, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it, even though you know God's word says not to do it. Sometimes we don't even know because we haven't read God's word, which we've got to read it, guys. And, 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 so, and so the question for you this morning is, where are you being tempted by fear to do something you know is wrong? There may be some of you right now who are tempted to compromise with your friends because of the fear of rejection. May I adjust that for a moment for you? Let's call it the craving for acceptance. So fear comes and says, run into the temple. Do that thing with them. God will forgive you. Identify it. That's the deception of fear that comes to discredit you. Or maybe it's financial ruin. Maybe the fear of financial ruin is knocking at your door and says, you know what? You can lie about this. You can fudge your income to get this second mortgage. You know, you don't have to tithe. You don't have to give to the church. It's coming to discredit, to deceive, to stop us from working. There are many other examples. But what did Nehemiah do? Look at verse 12. Nehemiah knew his Bible, so in verse 12, he's able to express what he knew was right because he knew God would never tell him to do something that his, God's word said don't do. And in verse 12, he says, I understood and saw that God had not sent him. He saw right through the ploy, right through the plot, as must we. Nehemiah then responds to all of these oppositions of fear with a prayer. Look at verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noida, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. 
Here, we see one of those maledictory prayers. It's a prayer of, of, of really, God, curse my enemies. I don't believe it's the prayer we're supposed to pray. I believe Nehemiah really is a Christ figure here. And later, we're going to see in this text that that prayer is actually fulfilled. I believe this is God saying, Al, don't take vengeance on your enemies. I am watching, I am noting, I am taking record, and in my due time, vengeance will be visited. Justice will be meted out. Hey, Al, justice was meted out on the cross, so you don't have to try to impose your justice on this situation. Just pray and keep working, buddy. Pray and keep working. Don't be distracted. Don't be disheartened. Don't be deceived so that you're discredited, but keep working. And that's point two of our message, the victory of faith. The victory of faith. The victory of faith is seen in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, fourth use of that word, and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Guys, faith wins the day as we work with God's help. The wall is finished. Here we have the turning point of this text. Here we have the turning point of this book. Here's the question the book had. Will the wall be rebuilt? Will Nehemiah make it to Jerusalem? Will the Jews follow Nehemiah's example? Will Nehemiah and the Jews be able to resist the opposition of powerful enemies surrounding them? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. Turning point. God does it. The walls are rebuilt. God's name and God's people are vindicated by faith. Listen, these two verses are God's answer to Nehemiah's mocking question in, in Nehemiah 4.2. Go there real quickly. Nehemiah 4.2. Nehemiah 4.2. Sam Ballot asked this question. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones? And God says, well, these feeble Jews will not restore the wall for themselves or by themselves, but they will restore it with my help. And friends, God will build the walls of this church through us by his hand. He will do it as we walk in faith amidst the opposition of fear, do you realize that the walls were built in 52 days? Walls that had lain in ruins for 150 years are built in 52 days. Generations who had lived among ruins. Just to give you an idea of how long that is. Okay, so what was America like 150 years ago in 1860? When God, in his sovereign grace, decides to move in your life, my life, I don't care what ruins you have, what ruins you've lived in, I don't care if for generations you have lived in ruins, you have lived a disgraceful, disastrous life, when God says it's time to build, he builds it, and the nations stand back and are amazed. So that the glory is God's. Stop looking at the ruins and the rubble. Stop listening to the voice of opposition through fear. And see your God who calls you to rebuild. Who calls you and says, now is the time. Now it's going to happen. What I love about this passage in verse 16, what does it say? 
All the nations around us were afraid, further down in that verse, and fell greatly in their own esteem. Why were they afraid? Why did they fall greatly in their esteem? Because they were impressed with the Jews. No, these were the feeble people, remember? No, they were afraid. They fell in their esteem because they saw themselves before a holy God, if ever so briefly. I'm not saying they repented, but they saw a holy God and they said, Whoa, we are in trouble and we are nothing. God enabled his people to bear witness of his mighty hand to the communities surrounding them. And God will enable us to bear witness of his mighty hand to the communities surrounding us. God was the difference maker then, and God is the difference maker now at Palm Vista. Is he the difference maker in your life as you build by faith? You see, verses 15 and 16 are actually an answer to Nehemiah's prayers. We just read one of them in verse 14. Lord, remember these guys. But the one I want you to look at real briefly is in chapter 4, verse 4. Remember Nehemiah 4, 4? Right after Sanballat had said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Nehemiah does what? He prays. And what does he pray? Look at Nehemiah 4, 4. Hear, O our God, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads. That's exactly what's happening here. They were trying to make Nehemiah fear so they could taunt him and give him a bad name. When God moved, they're the ones they were being fe- they were the ones fearing. They were taunted. They were the ones that saying, We've fallen in our own esteem. They were the ones who saw themselves as feeble. Do you see that? God did it. God answered the prayer. He answered it then. He will answer ours. The walls were finished. But The battle rages on. Do you see that? Look at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and the son of Jehonan, and had taken the daughter of Meshulam, and the son of Barakai, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid even after the wall was rebuilt. Mission accomplished, right? That doesn't mean an end to hostilities. On May 1st, 2003, George Bush became the first sitting president to make a landing on an aircraft carrier. A few hours later, he gave a speech. And in that speech, he announced the end of major combat operations in the Iraq war. Far above him, a huge banner on that aircraft carrier said, Mission accomplished. While this statement coincided with the end of the conventional phase of war, it marked the beginning of unconventional guerrilla warfare in Iraq through the Iraqi insurgents and al-Qaeda. The vast majority of casualties, friends, both military and civilian, occurred after that speech. The war was won, but the battle for a lasting peace had just begun. And so in our text, Nehemiah declared mission accomplished by God's mighty hand, but the battle for lasting peace, the battle to apply that victory, was just beginning. And that battle was against unholy alliances between certain Jews and this guy Tobiah, who may have been a Jew, by the way. He certainly was a traitor, but he may have been a Jew because he was opposing God's word. But God's people within the camp can align themselves with those who oppose God's word. It's revealed by these letters that went back and forth. They were spying on Nehemiah back to Tobiah and then carrying Tobiah's lies to Nehemiah to try to make Nehemiah afraid. Afraid. With friends like that, who needs enemies? But you know what, friends? Today, the victory, listen to me, 
The victory has been won on the cross of Christ. It's been won on the cross of Christ. But, but the battle rages on to apply that victory. There are unholy alliances, like my unholy alliance with my own flesh or the world's way of thinking, that we've got a battle. Now let me just pause for a moment here. I want you to write this text down and read it later today. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. What does this text say? It says the victory was won on the cross. Let me read it to you. I love this passage. And you, this is very similar to Ephesians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Hallelujah. Victory won by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it on the cross. Mission accomplished. Victory won. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is similar verbiage to Nehemiah. This is routing of the enemies. This is the nations fearing God. This is the nations falling in their own esteem. This is the victory of the cross that Nehemiah was pointing to, that we look back to. But how many of you know that Nehemiah, that Colossians 2 is followed by Colossians 3? And do you know what Colossians 3 tells you to do? Put to death, therefore, what belongs to the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, whoa, 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 slander, anger, harshness, lie. Stop lying to one another. Whoa, 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 whoa. The victory was won in chapter 215. What are you talking about? I'm talking about applying the victory. I'm talking about these nobles who were, who, who were tr- betraying the work of God to Tobiah. I'm talking about what the book is dedicated to from here on in, this book of Nehemiah. The rest of the book is applying the victory won with the walls being completed. He's going to confront these unholy alliances. He's going to call the people next week. Man, what a great message next week is going to be from chapter 8 to come under the word, and the word's going to speak to them, and it's going to start reforming them like it reforms us, and it's going to tell them to start doing things they weren't doing, certain feasts, and they're going to come under God's word as God's people in God's place. And it's a battle. It's a battle. But it's a battle won. It's a battle fought from a place of victory. Look at now to conclude this message. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint, appoint, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Some at their guard posts and some in front of their houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. Singers and Levites had to be appointed gatekeepers. And men who feared God, men who feared God had to be appointed as leaders. And guards, the people who lived in the city, had to be positioned on the walls and before the homes. And those homes had to be rebuilt within the walls. 
So you've got rebuilt walls with homes that are destroyed. Much work was left to be done. Much work was left to be done to apply the victory of those rebuilt walls. And that's our situation. God saves us. He rebuilds our walls. He positions us. He appoints leaders. He positions us to guard the gospel and begins to rebuild our homes. We must fight fear with faith as we apply the victory Christ won on the cross daily in our lives. And that is... That is the resolution point. That is the main point of this passage. We must fight fear with faith as we apply the victory of Christ. You want to know a shorthand for that? Fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. Just as the victory of rebuilt walls was applied there with radical measures, so the victory of rebuilt lives in Christ must be applied daily in our lives. Listen, how do we apply that victory? We apply it by appointing godly leaders. I believe we're doing that. We apply that as each man and woman of Palm Vista Community Church takes their place on the walls of the church and guards the gospel. Guards the gospel in your heart, friend, through this word. Guards the gospel in your home. And ultimately, we guard the gospel as a church. Will you apply the victory by taking your place on the wall and join believers here in this church to build what God has called us to build? Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to take this word and cause my friends this morning to be far more impressed with you and your power and your hand. Lord, that we would not leave here today thinking of all the things that we have to do or have not done, all of our deficiencies. No, we would think of our Savior. We would think of our God, who with his mighty hand, who strengthens our hand with his mighty hand, who builds walls that laid in ruins for 150 years and does it in 52 days. Lord, I pray for those that are seated here right now who are saying, Al, you don't understand. It's been a disaster in my life in this area. I can't overcome this sin. I don't know if I have faith for us to move forward in this area. Lord, even now, reveal Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended, the victorious one. And may from that position of victory, from Colossians 2.15, may they run to Colossians 3 and apply this victory to stubborn areas of sin to the distracting, disheartening, deceiving opposition of fear. Oh, God, build your church. May the gates of hell that come and rush our own hearts at times through fear not prevail against it. Father, we pray this with all of our hearts and we sing it with our voices. So stand with me, please, as we conclude. Let's sing this song. Before the throne of God above.